This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would fine me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Tuesday, December 17th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. The latest morning console tracking poll of the Democratic electorate has Michael Bloomberg in fifth place at 7% behind Pete Buttigieg at 8. That's a national poll. Shows that an ad blitz to match the DraftKings 2015 NFL buy can accomplish quite a lot. But you know, the ads are pretty good. And I have this crazy idea that the ads are partly pretty good, not just because Michael Bloomberg hires good ad people, but because he's actually accomplished things as mayor that most Americans might want him to accomplish for the country. Now, the conversation about him on policy, not on how much money he has, but just let's talk about Bloomberg's policies, has basically come down to, but stop and frisk, which is a good but. But if you've noticed, simply dismissing moderate candidates for apostasy or genuine missteps on racial issues, it has so far failed to derail many candidates this cycle. Joe Biden, yeah, he did oppose school busing in 1972. And Pete Buttigieg, yeah, he did fire a black police chief as mayor of South Bend. South Bend also experienced a police shooting of a black civilian. Yet somehow they are not sunk. They're still in it. Maybe Michael Bloomberg's stop and frisk policy won't be the thing that stops him either. So I'm going to dedicate my spiel to Michael Bloomberg's record of accomplishment, just based on the principle that no one else is talking about Michael Bloomberg's record of accomplishment, mostly talking about stop and frisk and money. But first, I realize this. I've never actually articulated my theory of governance. Maybe you've been listening to this show for five and three quarters years. God bless you. But you've never heard me say, okay, I'm always talking about the presidency. I'm always talking about politics and governance. What do I think government should do? So I will now tell you. Are you ready? Strap in. Mike says a sentence. Here we go. Government should improve the lives of the most people, especially the people who need it most. Pretty simple. You identify a problem. You find a solution. You definitely avoid huge screw-ups. But government should improve the lives of the most people, especially the people who need it the most. A smarter guy than me once put it this way. Sometimes your job is just to make stuff work. Sometimes the task of government is to make incremental improvements or try to steer the ocean liner two degrees north or south so that 10 years from now, suddenly we're in a very different place than we were, but at the time... That may that, that, that may not, but 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 at the at the moment, yeah. people may feel like we need a fifty degree turn. We we don't need a two degree turn. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, if I turn fifty degrees, the the whole ship turn. They they, they weren't going to let you turn fifty degrees. And and, and you <laughs> you can't turn fifty right. degrees. The uh, not, shock to the system. Not, and and it's not just because of you know uh, corporate lobbyists. It's not just because of uh, big money. It's because societies 
don't turn 50 degrees. Democracies certainly don't turn 50 degrees. They, and, and that's been true on issues of race. That's been true on issues of the environment. That's true on issues of discrimination. Mm-hmm. As long as they're turning in the right direction right. and we're making progress, right. then you know, government is working sort of the way it's supposed to. Those words, of course, from Boris Johnson. On the show today, yeah, that Bloomberg spiel I promised, you think you don't want to listen, but after I deluge you with 45 ads telling you to listen, you'll eventually warm up to it. But first, I love this guy. He's a thinker. He's an economist. He is, of course, Boris Johnson. No, he's Bronco Milanovic. He didn't invent the Gini coefficient, but he popularized its use. He's a very interesting guy on issues of inequality, which the Gini coefficient measures. He's curious on all manner of phenomena, economic and otherwise, and is here to talk about his new book, which acknowledges how the world seems to have organized itself as a capitalistic place. Capitalism alone, the future of the system that rules the world. Here's Bronko Milanovic. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Bronko Milanovic is one of the great economists of the world. He was the lead economist for the World Bank's research department, and he's written Global Inequality and The Haves and the Have-Nots, A Brief and Idiosyncratic History of Global Inequality. His new book is interesting and a new direction. It's more overtly political, but it's extremely descriptive and I think eye-opening. Capitalism alone, the future of the system that rules the world. Hello, Professor Milanovic. Well, hello. <laughs> Very nice seeing you and meeting you. Yes. So let's just admit it. I mean, capital it's over and capitalism won, right? That's clear, yeah. Capitalism yeah. won. Because it was better or why? What what were its major advantages? You know, it I mean, I would say it was better. Now it was better, I think, in two two important things. First, it was better in producing goods and producing obviously wealth. But it was also good, and maybe it was good in producing goods because it allowed people to actually do what they wanted yeah. and allow them to make money doing what was necessary to produce goods. So there are really, I think, two things. It's basically the incentives and the ability to use these incentives to produce things. Did we give the alternatives a fair enough shot? You always hear, well, you can't really denigrate socialism or even communism. It's never truly been tried. But it seems like we've had a few natural experiments where we've tried it and it lost. You know, this is the argument that I've heard. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a socialist or communist society. This is argument Yugoslavia. Been, yes, time, right? I've been yeah. hearing since I was six. You know, the argument was always, "Well, look, look, this is not. We are not happy, but it is not the real socialism." Well, you you know, we cannot. Uh, basically, what these people meant, the real socialism is the socialism that I would really like to have. It's like very much libertarians who say to you, "Well, capitalism in the U.S. is not real capitalism because I imagine a different capitalism which was much better. No cronyism, no political." 
political influence, nothing. But, you know, this is totally unrealistic. We have to look at the systems the way that they really are and not kind of imagine. So if you imagine something like maybe it's like also religion, we'll say, well, we have never really had a real, you know, Christian state. Yeah, we didn't have it, but, you know, we tried it several times and we saw how it worked. Yeah, uh, doomsday cults have a similar foundational principles. Like, we're not doing it right. We got it slightly wrong. We're going to be right the next time. <laughs> so basically, I take, you know, capitalism as it is, and I take socialism or communism as it was, and that's, I think this is the comparison that you have to make. But so there are different kinds of capitalism, and you name them and you draw upon historical labelings of them. So tell me what they are. Yeah, you know, you can, of course, make many labelings because capitalism has evolved. I mean, if you look only at Western capitalism, it has always evolved from the way it was in the 19th century, when you read Dickens, for example. I mean, this is not capitalism in the UK today. That's this kind of change. So there was an evolution. But I think it's fair to say that there is one capitalism, which I call liberal slash meritocratic, where the US is a very good example. And another one, where, which, which I call political capitalism, using Max Weber's terminology, where actually politics is more important and has, has other differences, but it's still capitalism because most of the production is produced you know, by privately owned capital with, with hired labor. And look at look at the statistics of China today. Who are most of the people working for? I mean, 90% are working for the private sector. So then the that's capitalism. That's capitalism. Now, yeah. the reason it's political capitalism is it's not to serve the workers or the laborers. It's basically capitalism in the service of the elites at the top. And I would say it is also capitalism which allows the state or the elite, which is political elite, to make decisions that in the liberal capitalism would be made by the market. So mm-hmm. in other words, it is the capitalism where political influence, in this case, Communist Party of China, but also the government and so on, is much greater than in a liberal capitalism. But, you know, liberal capitalism can also work in favor of the elite. So both of them are actually working all very often in favor of the elite, but the elites are different. Yeah. So you talk a lot about John Rawls, extremely influential political scientist. He's important to think about. And he had this basic test where let's judge a society based on this. Where would you want to be randomly born? In general, would you want to be randomly born in a liberal meritocratic rather than political? It would seem because randomly you wouldn't be an elite. Absolutely. Well, you know, I would, you know, I actually studied global inequality, and you mentioned actually my previous book was called Global Inequality. So, absolutely, I look at distribution, not only of mean incomes across the world, but actually distributions. So, when you look at the distributions around the world, what is very clear is that even if you're born in a relatively low status or low-income family in a rich country, you're very often much better off than being born in a middle class or even upper middle class in a poor country. In other words, it is better for you to make it very simple. It's better for you to be born in a low class in Sweden than to be born in the upper middle class in Tanzania, simply because you would actually be richer and you would have public services which you don't have in Tanzania. Okay, so with that in mind, with the Rawls test in mind, and with everything you say about liberal meritocratic systems being generally preferable to political ones, choose between India or China. Where would you rather randomly be born? 
It's a very difficult question. You know, I'm. You know, there were many people who had these discussions. I mean, do you think China would actually be more successful than India? It's a difficult question. You know, what is interesting about India and India doesn't play a big role because in my book, because obviously I use China as the example of political capitalism, as India is a democracy. But India is a remarkably able to deal with various crises. If you look at India at any point in time, like today, you would really have innumerable crises and issues, including, you know, rebellions in the northeast of the country. So these are problems that democracy of the Indian scope is able really to withstand and to grow and to basically ignore. So it has incredible flexibility. So it's not to use, for example, Nassim Taleb's terminology. It's not at all fragile. It's not brittle. It's actually very robust. China, on the other hand, is obviously much more successful in many respects, including growth, infrastructure, education, health, uh, lack of caste, for example, or social mobility. On the other hand, the crime, re- uh, crime yeah. the, the regime, on the other hand, seems to be much more sensitive to even small disturbances. So it does have fragility and India doesn't have fragility. Okay, so when you talk about the liberal meritocratic system, there are two great pillars that make it meritocratic. One is education and the other is taxing inheritance. There are many policies that people who want to be meritocratic or liberal can advocate, but you say those are the key ones. Why? Right. I actually took it from Rawls. Rawls, when he defines actually what is a liberal system, he says, well, everybody can accede to any position in life. Which, of course, in the past was not the case. If you were nobility, you actually, obviously, only nobility could have certain positions. If you're in India, you're, you have a caste structure, so you cannot really go beyond your caste even. Even today, actually, there are some problems. But what Rawls says about liberal is that you really have two key things to allow social mobility. The first one, you have to have free education so that actually everybody can go and study and actually have ability regardless of the class or social background of their parents. And the second part is also to level the playing field is that you have to tax very strongly. He doesn't say if it's 60%, 80%, whatever, but very strongly inherited money. And I really believe that these two points that Rawls raises are absolutely crucial if you want to have a society where actually ability and talent and hard work would be equally valued regardless of the background of individuals. America doesn't have a high enough inheritance tax, but let's talk about the problem with mass education. It's a a trick. It's an experiment that you can only do once massively. It's like the move from an agrarian society to an industrial one, and that confers great economic growth. We went through this experiment where people were generally not given a free education, and now they generally are, caveated with a lot of problems. So that means we, what, have to double, triple, quadruple down on the inheritance tax side of things? You know, obviously, I don't know. I don't have the calculations like how much things would have to be, how much money needs to be raised. But I really, I believe that the society that is so rich, like the American society, really would need to guarantee to people two things which are essential and whose real price has really gone tremendously and has affected a lot the middle class in this country. And this is education and health. And we see this really all over again. The third issue is housing. You know, we've talked about that before. But when we go back to education, I really think what has been made America great, particularly in the latter part of the 19th century and early 
first 50 years of the 20th century was really massive public education that really opened the doors for incredible number of people. And we see that little bit being closed now with a huge importance, not in terms of numbers, because numbers have not changed of the top universities, but huge importance of going to such top universities in order to get very good jobs. So you essentially have... A, a but is that truth or perception? Well, it's true, actually. When you look at how much money people from the top universities, I'm not taking Ivy League only, I'm taking yeah. like top 50 universities, are making after they graduate and compare that to the second year, you have significant difference. I cannot remember, it's like $30,000, $40,000 a year. So it's really significant. Right, it compounds over time. But you know, so. what then happens is that you have the following situation. You have very rich parents. Rich parents are able to pay such high tuition that high tuition guarantees you a very high-paying job. So you really maintain the power Power of a family over longer term. And that's, I think, actually quite dangerous. Yes. And this is, uh, you talk a lot about, what's your phrase for marrying like people? Ah, well, it's actually homogamy. It's a homogamy. sort of mating. Yes. 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 And that reinforces this because what then happens, I think it's something which is not fully understood yet, is homogamy means that you're really marrying, you have couples, whether homosexual, heterosexual, whether they're official couples or whatever. But in any case, you know, you have companionships or couples of both both of them having high education and relatively high incomes. Then, of course, they give all these other advantages to their children, including obviously money, education, and so on, but also time and connections. And we know that from the work that was done on the importance of early parental involvement and education. So the kids from such families have an incredible advantage towards everybody else. And then just superimpose on that the fact that they, they are the only ones able to go to such fancy and expensive schools, then really the system situation is very clear. This is just a thought experiment, but if what we really wanted to do was target income inequality, which is a great goal of yours, and you mentioned it, and it's informed all your work, would we be better off having a robust inheritance tax or a much more progressive tax code, or if we could somehow pass a law that would outlaw homogamy. You had to marry from outside your social class. <laughs> now, obviously, that would be crazy. We, first, obviously, it's, it's not feasible, and secondly, it would make everybody unhappy. Right. And we don't go, the goal want to of go capitalism back is to, happiness. The, to the 14th century. But what would, century, what would really know? affect income inequality more? Like, how big an effect is this? You know, our objective is not to reduce income inequality for its own sake. Our objective is to reduce income inequality so it does not produce the negative effects, whether it is a creation of a class which then basically maintains the power over generations or whether it is actually writing the rules of the game in your favor. So it's really the, uh, preventing the negative effects that income inequality generates. But there are also positive effects. We talked about communism in the beginning. One of the negative things in communism was precisely total absence of income inequality, or actually not absence, but I would say total decoupling between your effort and your reward. So yeah. obviously that's not something bad. So in other words, what I want to say very clearly to everybody, the objective is not to reduce income inequality because we just want everybody to be exactly equal. The objective is reduced income inequality so it does not produce the negative effects. Let's talk about mobility. I've also always thought that if you could, condition one is you really have to address 
privation. You shouldn't have immiseration. You shouldn't have starvation. So if we could really provide a robust safety net and also have very good mobility like the United States used to have, then I think income inequality would be much less of an issue. This is true. You know, in the U.S., of course, there was this belief, very strong belief that, as you know, that actually U.S. is a society with very high income mobility. So even if at every snapshot, when you take a picture of inequality, even if inequality is, is high, people would say, well, it is high now, but it's actually behind that high inequality that you observe today is really lots of social mobility, so it doesn't matter. And I would agree with you if this was nowadays the case in the United States. But what we see from empirical work, which we didn't have before, is that actually the current level of inequality, which is high, produces also intergenerational inequality, so maintenance of intergenerational positions. In other words, reduces mobility. Because, for some of the reasons you talked about, because people with the high incomes send their kids to the good schools, Mm -hmm. and there are only so many spots, and... Although, why shouldn't we just open up education through distance learning? I mean, maybe the case can be made that the 50 elite schools, why do they only have to have, you know, 2,000 undergraduates per class? And that's happening, of course, when, you know, Harvard has actually opened this up. So, you know, there there could be many solutions, you know, to to this problem. But let me... uh, Well, isn't isn't the point of higher education mostly signaling as opposed to mostly education? Oh, yeah, of course, a lot of that is signaling. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm saying, for example, when I talked about, of course, top schools and Ivy League schools... It is lots of that uh, signaling. And the reason we see that is that essentially when people, I, I didn't know quite well the American system, and people would say, well, I graduated from such and such fancy school. But in reality, that's a, a, a mis, uh, mislabeling. It's really, they got admitted. Because whoever gets admitted yeah. graduates. You look at the graduation rate, 97, 98%. So unless you do something like totally crazy and you live on your own, the, really the admission is the key. Yeah. And let me just say, that's the reason why the scandals in the U.S., most recently one in California, were the scandals about admission. They are not scandals about bribing professors so that they would give you A's. That doesn't really matter that much. It matters to some extent, but really it doesn't matter that much. I mean, we had, I think, it, we had presidents who actually, you know, graduated from fancy schools with C minus averages or whatever. So it's really not important. The important part is the admission. Yeah. Do you find any of the ideas, the economic ideas being discussed or debated in the Democratic primary heartening or exciting, or do you find any of them disappointing? You know, I have not followed it very, very closely, but I'm actually finding it extremely satisfying that some of the ideas that have not been even on the margins, even four years ago, have now really moved, if not in the mainstream, but certainly making significant progress in the U.S. And what is also interesting... Is like wealth tax? Like wealth tax, and actually... I mean, acceptance of taxation, if you look at actually Elizabeth Warren and look at Bernie Sanders, it's really now a quite a coherent view, which even 40 years ago was much less coherent than today. Except so, your whole book is that capitalism won and Bernie rejects that premise. No, no, but I don't know what Bernie calls socialism or whatever. Right. I mean, because everybody is a capitalist now. You know, Bernie is not saying, okay, we are going to, uh, to bring state ownership of the means of production. He's not saying we are going to have publicly owned companies. I mean, publicly in the sense uh, state-owned companies. Right. Uh, so really, Bernie is a capitalist, but he wants to have a capitalism which actually would be much more redistributive and more egalitarian. That's what I call people's capitalism in the book. All right. And the book is Capitalism Alone by Branko Milanovic. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And now the spiel. 
The other day on acclaimed Daily Slate program, What Next? A guest, Ian McDougall, was on to talk about Pete Buttigieg and his time at McKinsey. Don't worry, that's not what this is about. It wasn't the specifics about anything buttigieg that caught my ear. It was this general statement. You know, has a fairly technocratic attitude, believes that problems are fixable, and believes in the, the virtue of, of smart people putting their minds to tough problems and fixing them. And Now, stop, stop the tape. Now, as I heard those words, here's what I had in mind. Here's where I thought that he was going. And the problem is that not all problems are fixable. That could be a way he would be going or, but the problem is sometimes even the smartest people aren't smart enough to handle a serious problem. But that's not what the turn was. Here's what McDougal said. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be misapplied, certainly. That, by the way, that trying to fix problems and being smart in doing so, that's kind of a conservative argument for government inaction. Ooh, and unintended consequence. It always pops up. Be humble in your ambition. Be very doubtful of the ability of government to solve a problem. And unintended consequences lurking right around the corner. But I would say smart people believing problems are fixable and then trying to come up with the best solution to fix them isn't a way to look at government or an example of one of the things government can do. It is the fundamental purpose of government and should be the charge for all our elected officials. Others disagree. They cite moral beacon, represent our values, rhetorical leader. I say sure, as long as those skills are used in service of being a smart person identifying real problems, and then attempting to fix them. I'm not talking about Pete Buttigieg. I'm talking about Michael Bloomberg. Once was mayor of a city 80 times the size of South Bend. He gets labeled, I would say he gets tarred with the label of technocrat. But why is that a bad thing? When, if, if you're actually a capable technocrat, as opposed to an aspiring or wannabe technocrat, when Bloomberg entered the race, you heard, you probably heard that he favored some bad policies, namely stop and frisk true. You also heard and see every day that as a billionaire, he's trying to influence the election. Sometimes they put it like he's trying to buy the election. That's what all the other candidates were saying, as documented in this montage put together by The Daily Show. I think that Mike is expressing concern about this primary field, and he should not have concern. This is a stark difference from someone that can just come in and plop down checks and buy a bunch of ads. Um, I think people are going to see through it. I think that our elections should not be something that are bought by billionaires. So tonight we say to Michael Bloomberg and other billionaires, sorry, you ain't going to buy this election. <laughs> Trevor Noah and the audience finds Bernie delightful. I do too. But Bloomberg's not trying to buy an election. He's trying to buy our attention. And he will do so. If he succeeds in buying our attention, perhaps he will succeed in laying out his record of accomplishment. And he will need to because the political punditry has been largely dismissive of his potential appeal to voters. Here's Peter Baker of the New York Times. Look, I, I guess I'm not as, uh, uh, you know, bullish, I suppose, to use the right phrase. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I don't see what his constituency is, honestly. I, I see that. Here's Anand Giraharadas on MSNBC. The idea that a plutocrat is the solution to the problems of 30 or 40 years of plutocracy is sort of laughable. And, and, I and here's pollster Ariel Edwards-Levy on Left, Right and Center. 
I think maybe the, you know, rationale for a Bloomberg run is that Bloomberg would like to be president. I don't think that what this electorate was really crying out for was more candidates to choose from. And, you know, we've sort of consistently found, if you look at polls, that people in the Democratic uh, primary electorate are generally pretty happy with their field. Um, Enthusiasm satisfaction is higher than it's been in past cycles at this point. You know, you see a pretty small minority who are saying, I'm not happy with the candidates who are out there and certainly not enough for somebody to become the front runner. I guess the question then is those people who aren't happy with the field is what they're looking for a Michael Bloomberg sort of candidate. And, do you know, I'm not really convinced there is. I'm not sure what he brings to the table. What he brings to the table is, if we were to be fair, the deepest record of accomplishment of anyone running. I don't like the idea of billionaires running our government. I didn't like it when Bloomberg ran in 2001 and I didn't vote for him. But I stopped minding it when I saw what he was doing, and I did vote for him in mayor in 2005 and 2009, because he was a really good mayor in so many areas that I judged to be vital to the city. Now, I guess I have the curse of having lived in the city and paid a lot of attention during that time, so I'm not going on caricature. I'm not just pointing to one policy like stop and frisk. I am not subscribing to the worldview that the problem of America is plutocrats. Anand is right, the Bloomberg candidacy is not the candidacy for people who think that the problem is plutocrats. There are a lot of Democrats running who define America's problem as plutocrats or millionaires and billionaires. But if, say, you think a problem is crime or education or budgeting or the environment or gun violence or public health, then yes, Michael Bloomberg, I will say it again, has an actual record of accomplishment that surpasses anyone in the field unless you count all of the accomplishments of the Obama presidency as Joe Biden's accomplishments. Let us just take a couple. There are too many to get into, but education's a big one. When Bloomberg took office, the high school graduation rate in New York was less than half, 46.5%. When he left office, it was two-thirds. Now, sometimes it's a bigger societal trend that explains what one city does, like how the national economy affects the local economy. But with education, Bloomberg pointed to it as this is going to be a big area of my concern. He revamped and redesigned the Board of Education. He centralized power with the chancellor of the Board of Education accountable to the mayor. It worked. It worked really well. It worked in ways that profoundly affected the lives of thousands of people. Graduation rate is only one measure, but schools improved by almost all measures. And just think of the power of graduation. Just think of the deficit of lacking in education. When Bloomberg took office, 22% of high school students dropped out. When he left office, that number was down to 10. It's, it's since become lower still. There are 55,000 New Yorkers who are high school graduates who would not have been high school graduates were it not for the changes that Bloomberg enacted. And that was only during his tenure. Since then, throughout the de Blasio administration, thanks to changes Bloomberg implemented, it's probably true that close to 100,000 New Yorkers, or they may have since left New York, are walking around as high school graduates and not as high school dropouts. And that is a huge deal that has a huge impact on people's lives because high school dropouts struggle more with criminality and drug use and diminished economic prospects. That's all correlated with dropping out. If you want to look at the racial progress made on high school graduation, here are some stats. When Bloomberg takes office, black students graduate at a rate of 40%. When he leaves office, it's 61. White students go from 64 to 80. Hispanic students start off at a 37% graduation rate. When he leaves, it's 659 
And yes, Aaron Pallas, chair of the Department of Education Policy at the Teachers College of Columbia University, dings Bloomberg by noting, quote, it's still the case that the typical white New York City public high school student was much more likely to graduate from high school than the typical black or Hispanic student at the end of the Bloomberg era. Or you could say that by the time Bloomberg was done, the black student graduation rate had climbed to almost where the white student graduation rate was before he started. And it's since surpassed it. I mean, you know, technically you could try to get more white students to fail to make that stat seem better. But the gaps actually shrank in the gap of student graduation rates by race. Bloomberg has done more to help Americans on this one issue than all of the senators have cumulatively accomplished. Now, in a way, it's not fair because Bloomberg was the mayor of America's biggest city and a positive change in New York is going to help a lot of lot of people. And if you're a senator, especially a senator in a Republican controlled Senate, you're not going to be able to have a lot of tangible accomplishments. Although some of these other candidates were also mayors. Cory Booker was mayor of Newark. He improved schools a little bit there. Also, he was mayor from July 2006 through October 2013. He improved schools a little bit there. As far as crime, he didn't do so great. He was mayor from July of 06 through October of 2013. And in uh, 2013, there were 112 murders. And in 2006, there were 105 murders. In between those years, there was an average of 85 murders. I guess it's something. By the way, Bernie Sanders was mayor of Burlington, Vermont. For all of the 80s, over his span as mayor, The number of families living in poverty increased 42% from 563 to 798. What about in Senate? Well, I have the total for the number of bills that became law from a few of the senators who are running for president. Elizabeth Warren has introduced 305 bills and zero became law. Cory Booker has introduced 269 bills and two became law. Bernie Sanders introduced 909 bills, three became law. I understand. I understand. Cue the caveats. The Senate was mostly controlled by Republicans during their time. The value of a senator isn't only number of bills he or she writes that becomes law. But the premise is, my premise here is, what's the case for Bloomberg, someone asked. I said, it's that he has a greater record of achievement than anyone in the race. I think that does go to my point. I could list some of his other accomplishments. Murders halved, people incarcerated nearly halved, excellent budgeting that included a rating day fund to fund pensions. Here's an accomplishment that was touted by the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, when he was running for president during a debate. Lead poisoning has gone down 90% since 2005, and we're going to literally bring it down to zero because we're going to go into every place, buildings, schools, public housing, and take out that lead, remediate that lead once and for all. And that needs to be done all over this country. What's interesting is that de Blasio started his count in 2005. That piqued my interest. I looked into the stats. That was when Bloomberg was mayor for four years. In fact, almost all the progress that de Blasio was talking about predated him. Lead poisoning of kids at a rate above 10 micrograms per deciliter affected 14 out of 1,000 children when Bloomberg took office. He brought it down to 2.5 out of 1,000 in his last year. It's now 2.3 per 1,000 in the last year for which there are stats. Bloomberg managed a big city exceedingly well didn't do perfectly in all policy areas. He didn't do so according to the policy preferences of all people. That's all impossible. Beyond his mayorality, his public health efforts 
are profound and world-changing. I mean, this guy has an ambitious program that could save 10,000 Bangladeshis from drowning every year. He bankrolled the most impressive and most important public health school in America. His anti-smoking efforts, oh my gosh, sure, they're nudgy, they're coercive. If you're a smoker, you think they're a pain in the ass. They'll probably wind up saving a cumulative, I don't know, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of years of Americans' lives kind of crazy to me to ask, why is this guy running? What's he done? And now, oh, how's he ever going to get past stop and frisk? It's almost like he's done so much, and yes, some of it's bad, that it's hard to get your head around. It's hard to compare to the stature of the mayor of a Midwestern city, 180th the size of New York. But maybe I'm impressed with Bloomberg by what I said at the top of the show. I think government should improve the lives of the most people, especially the people who need it most. I saw the slogan of the Bloomberg Philanthropies, and it was this. The Bloomberg Philanthropies work to ensure better, longer lives for the greatest number of people. That is close to my ideal. And even if Bloomberg is less than ideal, he should get a more serious consideration, ideally. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He wonders, was it Dick York or Dick Sargent? Which of the Darren portraying Dicks, working alongside Jeannie, made sure Jeannie's time wasn't wasted and that Jeannie's good works had maximum impact? Who was the better Jeannie coefficient? Christina DeJosa, Gist producer, thinks the guy who stigmatized big gulps and posted calorie counts on menus could be president, just not of the United States of America, picked a wrong country for a calorie hater the gist i say the ocean liner needs to turn two degrees one day then two degrees the next and maybe two degrees the third day and pretty soon we will be wishing we'd actually left the dock and thanks for listening